Thanks so much. Thanks, Bob. Thanks, Bob, for sharing. If you would take your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 14. Turn to Mark chapter 14. How many of you like pictures? How many really like pictures? Not many of you. Okay. Maybe we can go. Oh, there you go. Okay, thanks. Thought maybe I lost you here already. I, uh, I love pictures, okay? I have probably 2,000 on my cell phone and probably another 2,000 on my computer. Trina's always telling me to download them, and I usually don't until my phone says you have no more room. I have literally thousands of pictures of Creekside. Since I've been here 21 years, we've taken a lot of pictures. I have scrapbooks, and I have just scads of pictures from when we first started here in 1992. And uh, I could tell you the story of our time here on pictures. I could just lay them out. I really, I have that many. It was a year or so ago, a couple years ago, a lady in the church might be kind of hard for everybody to see, but this is a Thomas Kincaid painting that she gave me. It was by Thomas Kincaid. It was called Golfer's Paradise Hole Number 1. As you may know, he passed away in the last couple of years, and I think he was planning on doing a series of them of 18 holes, and this is hole number one, the only one that he did in golf, I believe. And so one of the dear ladies of our church bought it for me, and it's in my office. I love pictures. One of the couples in our church that I had the joy of marrying probably four or five years ago, uh, Ronnie and Chrissy uh, Von Barron, they... uh, a couple weeks after their wedding, they gave me this picture. And it may be hard for you to see, but it's very unique. Somehow the photographer during the wedding took a picture of my hand holding the ring that Ron was going to place on Chrissy's finger. I was holding there talking about the ring ceremony and ready to give it to him before he placed it on her finger. But the photographer took this picture and they gave it to me. I thought, what a cool, unique picture. I love pictures. Got them all over the place. I have to switch them around and take them down. Last night, we had our grandson Isaac over, and um, he's just at that age now where sports is kind of starting to click and make sense. We were playing baseball at first until he hit one of the balls over our neighbor's fence who were not home to get it. Then he picked up a basketball which is my game, my sport, what I love. And so I said, I got to teach this kid at three and a half on his little hoop how to throw it down, how to slam dunk, how to get it in somebody's face. And so I kind of showed him on my knees and I showed him, hey, bro, this is what you do, hard, throw it down. So pretty soon he is going at the end of the cement, running up and throwing it down. I loved it. Here, I got a picture of it. Okay. He had two runways. He had the one that's right behind him, and then he had another one that went out more into the other grass part. And he'd come in, and he got the hang of it. I thought, oh, sweet Jesus, thank you. You know? <laughs> He's going to pick up my sport. And, uh, and so we're playing, and he'd say, Papa, Papa, you slam it. You dunk it. So I'd take it, and I'd dunk it, and I'd throw it back to him, and then he'd dunk it. And I finally said, ah, I really need to inspire this kid for basketball. So I said, I said, eyes. Your papa, I have these scrapbooks of when I played basketball in high school and college. 
okay? So I said to Eyes, he's old enough to get this. I said, Eyes, would you like to see some pictures of Papa playing basketball? Be a real inspiration. No. I thought maybe he didn't understand because Trina looks at him. I have her look at him every couple of weeks. And um, she just really gets a big jolt out of him. But uh, so we kept playing. Probably another 20 minutes later, I thought maybe he just didn't understand the, the, the awesome potential of what this could bring about. So I said, Isaac, would you like to see some pictures of your papa playing basketball? And he goes like this. No, papa. I said, No. So not everybody has my great appreciation for pictures. I'll work on that. But uh, I was thinking, you know, the next few weeks, I want to look at some art history that tells a story, that tells God's story, because there's some great art out there. And the picture we're going to look at today is a picture called The Three Crosses. And the reason I chose this is because it's so important that we never forget the importance of the cross in our daily life, in our life, that Christ went and died on this cross for our sins. It's easy to focus on it around Good Friday, around Easter time, and forget about it the rest of the year. But I never want us to be a church that forgets the price that Jesus paid for us. You know why? Because I really believe this, that if you keep that, never forget what Jesus did for you on the cross, it will keep you moving forward. It will slap the slack out of your spiritual sails. It will keep you wanting to give your best to the one who gave his best for you. Now, this picture that we're looking at today is one by Rembrandt, who was a Dutch painter. He finished this painting called The Three Crosses in 1653. Now, he's considered one of the great artists of European art history, as well as really uh, art history of the whole world. And we're going to look at another one of his paintings next week. But in this picture, you see Christ on the cross, and he's flanked by the two thieves who were crucified with him, along with the gathering of people around him who were watching. You see the Virgin Mary depicted there. If you could see it up close, she's fainted and held probably by uh, John the Beloved, who was so close to Jesus and ended up taking care of Mary, Jesus's mother. You see the Roman soldiers there on their horses. You see citizens praying and frantic as they're around the cross watching this crucifixion take place. Art critics speculated that the scene of this piece could be interpreted as Christ's moment of death. You see the sky in the background is very dark all around it, but there's a beam of light shining above Jesus, acting as as an icon of God's light from heaven. Rembrandt was probably uh, inspired, they say, from a passage of Matthew chapter 27, when Jesus was dying on the cross, and he simply said this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Rembrandt was heavily influenced by biblical passages. As a matter of fact, he had over 300 paintings and sketchings that were taken from biblical stories. So you begin to see the heart behind the art, and we're going to come back to this in just a minute at the end. I want you to look at the Gospel of Mark. We're going to kind of do a crosswalk through this this morning. Uh, I don't remember when the last time I did a talk like this. It's uh, probably more of a, uh, Trina said it sounded more like a lecture than good preaching. 
I don't know what that means, but uh, I added the good preaching. She just said lecture. But this is, a, this is so important because I never want us to lose sight, loved ones, of the importance of the cross in your life. This is one of the greatest stories that we, we forget about until the holiday season. Today, we're simply going to do this. We're going to read through the story of Jesus's cross and the meaning of it for us act by act. I'll make a few observations along the way, and then we'll close with kind of an application point. But this is the big idea. This is what I want you to hear. Jesus did all of this for you. He could have saved himself, but he didn't. See, that's the essence of the gospel right there. Jesus didn't save himself. He came as a man, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died, and then resurrected on the third day. In the essence of it, that's the gospel. And he did all of that for you and for me. So we're going to pick it up in Mark chapter 14 at verse 53. But right before that, we see Jesus has been arrested. <coughs> Excuse me. And as he's arrested, he's deserted by all of his followers. I mean, they're just gone. They're, it's like cockroaches and the lights go on and they're like cockroaches. They just scurry and get away. Nobody's there. Jesus is alone. So let's pick it up at verse 53. They led Jesus away to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes, they convened. Peter followed him at a distance right into the high priest's courtyard. He was sitting with the temple police, warming himself by the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for testimony against Jesus to put him to death. That was their hope. That was their plan. But they couldn't find none. For many were giving false testimony against him, but the testimonies did not all agree. So some stood up and they were giving false testimony against him, stating, we heard him say, I will demolish this temple made by human hands and in three days I will build another not made by hands. When Jesus made that statement, he was talking about what? His body, his death, and his resurrection. But their testimony did not agree even on this point. Then the high priest stood before them all and they questioned Jesus. Don't you have an answer to what these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. He did not answer anything. Again, the high priest questioned him, pressed him. Are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? Finally, verse 62, Jesus said, I am. And all of you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. There's going to come a day, guys, when you're going to see me in a different way. Then the high priest tore his robes and he said, why do we still need witnesses? We've heard the blasphemy. What is your decision? Well, they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Then someone began to spit on him. Some blindfolded him. And they started beating him, saying, prophesy. Even the temple police took him and they slapped him. So what you see here is all of these religious bigwigs, the 
the, the, the big religious dogs of that day, they come together and they conspire against Jesus. But they're a little bit exasperated by the contradictory witnesses and by Jesus' silence because they were always trying to trap him. But finally, he breaks his silence and he says, yes, I am he. It was at that point that they had enough to really convict him of blasphemy. But Jesus, he goes on and he gives them a little bit more. He gives them the yes answer on steroids. I mean, it's much bigger and more profound if you really understand it. The irony is really rich because Jesus is standing there. He's arrested. He's been beaten. He's been pounded on, humiliated. He's facing death. And in just a few short hours, he would literally be sitting at the right hand of God, the position of power and judgment. And you know what he's saying really here? If you read between the lines and understand Jesus, he's saying, you're not going to have the last word, guys. I am. Because there's going to come a time when you're going to see me, and I'm going to be standing before you, and you're going to be standing before me, and I will be your judge. See, at this point, they had all they wanted from Jesus. By his own words, he was a blasphemer by saying, He was God. They could convict him of that. So they condemned him of a death, of of something worthy of death. But you see, the Romans wouldn't allow the Jews to practice capital punishment, so they had to wait till the next day and take him to Pilate. So somewhere in between this time that we just read and going to see Pilate the next morning, what did they do? Well, they literally, they tortured him. They just did it for sport. Kill some time. Spit in his face. They blindfolded him. They slugged him. They mocked him. They literally would say things like this. Put a, something around a blindfold him, and they'd say, okay, if you're the God, tell us who hit you. And they'd hit him. Prophesy who hit you. Probably went on for a number of hours. We don't know for sure. But this is what I want you to know. Jesus did all this for you. All this for you, for me. While Peter was in the courtyard below one of the high priest's priest's servants came. When he saw Peter warming himself, he looked at him and he said, Huh. You also were with that Nazarene Jesus, weren't you? But he denied it. I don't know. I don't understand what you're talking about. Then he went out of the entryway and a rooster crowed. When he saw the servant, when the servant saw him again, she began to tell those standing nearby, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it after a little while those were standing there, said to Peter again, you certainly are one of them since you're also a Galilean. Then he started to curse and to swear with an oath. I don't know this man that you're talking about. Immediately a rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered when Jesus had spoken the word to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. It says, as Peter thought about it, what did he do? 
he began to weep. See, it was only hours before, friends, that Peter had declared, even if all fall away, I will not. Even if I have to die with you, Lord, I will not disown you. So what's taking place there? Well, Peter overpromised and he underdelivered. Have you ever done that as a follower of Christ? I find it interesting that Peter's failures are in all the Gospels. Not all of the Gospels contain all of the same information, but this story is in there. Why? I think it's because that the writers want us to understand that there is a warning with this, but there's also a promise. The warning is simply don't deny Jesus. See, if the apostle Peter, who really was the leader of the apostles, the disciples, the followers of Jesus, if he could fall, any of us could. Don't overestimate your own strength. But there's also a promise of forgiveness here because we understand what? That when Jesus resurrected, it says literally in 1 Corinthians 15 and then in John 21, it says specifically that Jesus sought out Peter. Why? To forgive him, to restore him back into the relationship that he had broken with Jesus. I don't know if you know this, but really Peter's story is our story. So often we have a tendency to overpromise God and underdeliver. See, like Peter, we're more weak and sinful than we ever imagined, but guess what? We're also more loved than we could ever believe. And that's really the story of Peter. In the midst of your failure, loved ones, Jesus comes in his pursuing love and in his great presence to always bring and call you back to him. Why? Because Jesus did all this for you. Well, as soon as it was morning, the chief priest had a meeting with the elders, the scribes, and the whole Sanhedrin. Again, all the big religious dogs. After trying after tying Jesus up, they led him away and they abandoned him over to Pilate. So Pilate asks him, "Are you the king of the Jews?" Jesus says simply, you have said it. Well, the chief priest began to accuse him of many things. Then Pilate questioned him again. Are you not answering anything? Look how many things they're accusing you of. But Jesus still did not answer anything. And Pilate was amazed. So it was at the festival, it was Pilate's custom to release to the people a prisoner that they requested. Well, there was this one man named Barabbas who was in prison with rebels who had committed murder during a rebellion. The crowd came up and they began to ask Pilate to do for them as was his custom. So Pilate answered them, do you want me to release the king of the Jews for you? Hoping they would say yes. For he knew it was because of envy that the chief priest had handed him over, not because there was really anything that Jesus had done wrong. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd so that he would release Barabbas to them instead of Jesus. Verse 12, Pilate asked them again, and what do you want me to do with the one you call the king of the Jews? And again, they shouted, crucify, crucify him. Pilate began to say to them, why? What has he done wrong? But they shouted all the more, crucify him, crucify him. 
Then willing to gratify the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. And after having Jesus flogged, he handed him over to be crucified. That portion of scripture, that passage right there, friends, is really the essence, the central truth of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. An innocent man is condemned. An innocent man died for the guilty. Barabbas was guilty of insurrection and murder. Everybody knew it. But Jesus, an innocent man, said, I'm going to take your place. And he did. See, the scripture says this in Romans 3, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. And the way that we get to experience that eternal life is because of what Jesus did as a gift of salvation for us. Jesus was innocent. He was innocent with Barabbas, and he was innocent with you and me. But you know what he did? He was willing to take our sin, take it to the cross, and die in your place, in my place, in humanity's place. There's a little phrase there, you just kind of blow by it, read over it, and really don't notice it, but it said, he had Jesus flogged. Those simple words, we, we really can't relate to them, but those simple words describe an unimaginable horror. A Roman soldier flogged Jesus with the whip of, of long leather uh, thongs tipped with metal, that on the tips of them would have been metal or bone. A skilled soldier could literally strip strip the flesh off the back of his victim, sometimes to the place where bones would show or internal organs would be exposed. Oftentimes, most people, if they were flogged, would not survive it. They would die from shock and loss of blood. They basically said that if you were flogged with 40 stripes, that 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 would cause your death. Isn't it interesting that they gave Jesus 39. Let's keep him alive. Let's make him suffer. Guess what? Jesus did it all for you. Well, then the soldiers led Jesus away into the courtyard, that is, the headquarters. They called the whole company together. They dressed him in a purple robe, twisted together a crown of thorns, and they put it on him. And then they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! And in this continuous tense, they kept hitting him on the head with a reed and spitting on him. Then they'd get down on their knees, and they were paying him homage. (laughs) When they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple robe. They put his clothes on him, and they led him away to crucify him. The Roman soldiers added their own sin and assault to this mix by having fun at Jesus' expense. They mocked him. They beat him mercilessly. They put a robe, probably a rough robe, on his raw, bleeding back, and then they took a crown of thorns and pressed it on his head. Then giving a staff, they begin beating with him while they're spitting at him and mocking him. Jesus did all this for you. It says they forced a man coming in from the country who was passing by, carrying to, to carry Jesus' cross. He was Simon, a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander, and Rufus, 
and they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means skull, place. They tried to give him wine mixed with mirror, but he did not take it. Then they crucified him and divided his clothes, casting lots for them to decide what each would get. Now it was nine in the morning when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge written against him was simply this, the king of the Jews. They crucified two criminals with Jesus, one on the right and one on the left. So the scripture was fulfilled that says, and he was counted among outlaws or thieves. Those who passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, ha, the one who's going to demolish the temple and build in three days. Why don't you save yourself by coming down from the cross? In the same way, the chief priests with the scribes were mocking him to one another and saying, he saves others. Can't even save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross so that we may see and believe even those who were crucified with him were taunting him. We understand that there was two thieves. See him in the picture. The interesting thing is, is one continued to taunt because he had his eye toward the crowd and he followed the crowd and ended up dying in his sins that day. The other one came to his senses and realized this is the Son of God and turned to Jesus and said, Today, I want to be with you. And Jesus said, Today, you're going to be with me in paradise. And see, loved ones, every one of us is one of those thieves. Scripture says that when you sin, I mean, you sin in every area. It isn't that you just do one or two. It's, man, you just do them all. So we're all thieves. And we're either on the side of the cross that says, <laughs> I don't believe in you and save yourself and blah, blah, blah. Or we're the one over here that says, oh, I see what you're doing. I see who you are. I want to be with you. I want to be with you today. See, they crucified Jesus and, and they tried to drug him with a wine and another mix to dull his pain. But what does Jesus do? He refuses it. Jesus chose to experience this horrible suffering with all of his senses intact. Why? Because he's literally drinking the cup of suffering of God's wrath for all humanity. So they divide up Jesus' clothes and he's crucified naked. The Romans would regularly do that, not only to add to the pain, but to add to the shame and have a man up there crucified naked, part of the humiliation of a crucifixion. And it says, and they crucified him. Those simple words don't begin to describe the pain and the anguish that Jesus experienced. Never shared this before. But today I just felt like I, I wanted us to be reminded of what this is like. This is a, a medical doctor provides a physical description of what happens in a crucifixion. He says the cross is placed on the ground and the exhausted man is quickly thrown backwards with his shoulders pinned against the wood. The legionnaire feels for the depression at the front of the wrist. He drives a heavy square wrought iron nail through the wrist and deep into the wood. Quickly, he moves to the other side and repeats the action, being careful not to pull the arms too tight, but to allow for some flex and some movement. The cross is then lifted into place. The left foot is pressed backward against the right foot. And with both, both feet extended, 
toes down a nail is driven through the arch of each, leaving the knees slightly flexed. The victim is now fiery, had now as fiery pains shoot along his fingers up his arms and they begin to explode in the brain. The nails in the wrists are putting pressure on the median nerves. As he pushes himself upward to avoid the stretching uh, torment, he places the full weight on the nail through his feet. Again, he feels the searing agony of the nail tearing through the nerves between the bones of the feet. As the arms fatigue, cramps sweep through the muscles, nodding him in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps comes the inability to push himself upward and to breathe. Air can be drawn into the lungs, but not exhaled. He fights to raise himself up in order to get even one small breath. Finally, carbon dioxide builds up in the lungs and in the bloodstream, and the cramps partially subside. Spasmatically, he is able to push himself upward to exhale and bring in life-giving oxygen. Hours of this limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint-rending cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, searing pain as tissue is torn from the lacerated back as he moves up and down against the rough uh, timber. Then another agony begins, a deep crushing pain, deep in the chest as the pericardium slowly fills with serum and begins to compress the heart. It is now almost over. The loss of tissue fluids has reached a critical level. The compressed heart is struggling to pump and to heave heave thick sluggish blood into the tissues. The tortured lungs are making a frantic effort to grasp in small gulps of air. Person can now feel the chill of death creeping through the tissues. Finally, he can allow his body to die. All this Mark records with the simple words, and they crucified him. What incredible love this was. You know what? Jesus did this all for you. And see, besides the physical agony of what we just read about and took place, there's the constant barrage of verbal abuse. Don't miss the irony Don't miss it in their abuse. He saved others, but he can't save himself. Let him come down from the cross and then we'll believe in him. Imagine that. Come down from the cross. Oh, we'll believe. Probably not. They didn't believe it when he was passing out bread and bread to 5,000 people from two loaves and five fishes. They didn't believe then. Why would they believe now? And if he would have come down, because he could have. And if he would have come down, guess what? He would have saved himself, but he wouldn't have saved you. And you, 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 and me. He loved you and me and humanity more than he loved himself. Jesus did all this for you. When it was soon, darkness came over. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land. So now six hours have passed from the time of the crucifixion till the time of death. Six hours. Darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, 
Why have you forsaken me? Then some of those standing there heard this, and they said, look, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, mixed it on a reed, offered him a drink, and said, let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. But Jesus let a loud cry and breathed his last. Then the curtain of the sanctuary was split in two from top to bottom in their temple. When the centurion who was standing opposite Jesus saw the way he breathed his last, he said, this man must really be God's son. One that was accusing, mocking, beating, in the end says, this is God's son. In these words, in this cry of Jesus, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's this deep mystery. Maybe even the deepest part of Jesus' suffering. Many of us know this, that Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit, they are eternal. They have always been. They will always be. They don't have a beginning. And so from from eternity past to eternity future, from eternity past, they had never been separated. They were the perfect community. They had love. They had relationships. They were always together. And there comes this point in history where they're separated, where it literally says that God turns his back on his son. I've talked with people whose spouses are in the process of divorcing them or divorce them, and they said, I would prefer death over what happened or what was taking place. See, I've been married for Trina for 35 years. We have just this wonderful, loving relationship. I couldn't imagine if one day she said to me, I'm leaving you. I've sat in my office with people literally crying, sobbing uncontrollably trying to work through what's happened with their spouse. Can I just tell you something? That's only a foreshadow. It's only a shadow of what had to have happened with Jesus. First time in eternity that he'd ever been separated from his Father and the Spirit. So with a loud cry, Jesus breathes his last. And as he died, he shouts, tell us they, which means it is finished. Or what it really means for us, it is finished. Sin and death are paid in full. Now we can be free. We can be forgiven. We don't have to face and fear death the way everybody else does. Jesus said he came to give his life as a ransom for many, to give himself up so that we could live. And that's exactly what takes place here. And Jesus clearly communicates and declares in his last words from the cross that he has given his life to free you me, free you and me and to redeem us. Jesus did this all for you. So what happens? Well, they take him off the cross. His followers take him and they ask if they can bury him because they think this is the end. This is the end of their hopes and their dreams. 
Jesus was their Messiah. Now it's over. Or so they think. And normally it would be, right? Because usually dead people are dead. But no, Jesus, he is a good, he is a God man. And you can't keep a God man down. And he resurrects and comes back and seals the deal for you and for me. Before we receive communion today, I want to remind you, Jesus did all this for you. Here's the rest of the story of Rembrandt's picture. I love what John R. Stott, a great preacher from England, he said, before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. It was not the religious rulers and leaders who killed Jesus. It was you, 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 me. It's our sin, the scripture tells us, that nailed him to the cross. As you study this picture, look at it of Rembrandt's painting of the three crosses. Your eye is directly drawn to the middle where Jesus is on the center of the cross where he died. Then you'd begin to look around and notice all the facial features of the people that are gathered around at the foot of the cross. And you'd be impressed by the, uh, by the detail of their facial features. You begin to see the people as they are witnessing this awful crime of the crucifixion. But as you go through the picture, if you look closely in the far right-hand corner in the shadows where it's darkest, you'll see the outline of a face. Most art critics say this. They believe that it was Rembrandt painting himself in the picture. Why is that? Because Rembrandt had an understanding that it was his sin that nailed Jesus. Uh, Father, I thank you so much for today and the time that we get to come and and celebrate and worship and share our lives with each other as we learn from you. Um, I pray for all of us, God, that um, as as we get tempted, as life goes on, God, every one of us faces it. Uh, Jesus faced it. I pray that you give us the strength to turn to your word. You give us the strength to turn to you and that we can get our strength from you to get through these hard things, God. I thank you for everybody in here. I pray that... uh, I pray that you bless and you touch everyone's heart and that when they leave here today, uh, they're not the same because they've had an experience with you. We thank you, we love you, and we give you all the praise and all of God's children said. Amen. Have a great afternoon, everyone. You're loved. It was literally torn in half. What's that picture of? See, in the temple for the Jewish believers in Judaism, the high priest would go in one day a year and offer atonement, Yom Kippur, offer atonement for the sins of the nation of Israel and for himself. He's the only one that could go in there and do that, one person. What God is saying, two clear things. Now it's not a high priest because Jesus Christ is your high priest. He is the one that makes it possible for you to be forgiven. You and I don't have to get sacrifices or take sacrifices to the temple anymore. Aren't you glad about that? Could you imagine how embarrassing if I had to bring in this big cow and an ox and a and a couple of birds, and a turtle dove, and all of this stuff, and you see me bring it in to be sacrificed on other days besides Yom Kippur, and you go, wow, poor pastor, man, what a sinner. (laughs) Well, it is kind of funny, but you know what? It's the same for you. We'd all have to just bring our stuff, strut it to the temple. 
don't have to do that anymore. Jesus is our sacrifice. And not only is number one here sacrifice, this is what's so precious and powerful. He has opened up, he has opened up the doors of heaven. He has opened up access to the Father. Now we have access to the God, the creator of the universe because of what he did. That's why we get to call him Abba, Papa, Father. We're now sons and daughters of the living God. And when you begin to understand that, loved ones, that Jesus not only died for your sins and resurrected again to seal and to secure it, but now he gives you access to the Father. Not based on who you are or how you live or what you do, but based on what Jesus has done. You're forgiven. You're redeemed. Can I tell you something? Jesus did it all for you, for me, for this world. And when you understand that Jesus gave you his best, I really believe it's going to challenge you to give your best. How are you talking to people, treating people, living your life before people? Are you showing Jesus? Can they see Jesus because of the way you live? Are you giving your best for the one who gave his best for you? In just a moment, we're going to receive communion. And it's possible, I suppose, that some here have never made a commitment to Jesus Christ. Where You said, I want to follow you. He doesn't come to follow you. You go to follow him. And this morning, if you've never done that, I invite you to do that right here, right now. Just simply say, Jesus, I invite you into my life because I want to follow you. I have a greater understanding of the gospel, the good news of what you've done for me, so I want to follow you today. And it really is a simple decision, a desire of your heart. And you can make that decision right now. I'd encourage you to just simply on your connection slip, fill it out and just say, today, I committed my life to Jesus or I renewed my commitment to the lover of my soul. And just simply, somehow, someway, invite him in to your life, just through your words. Nothing magical about it. It's simply a heart response. Then you can receive communion. We have an open communion here at Creekside. I'm going to invite the servers, if they come and get their uh, communion emblems, and we're going to have a station over here, a station back there, a station here, and a station over here. And in just a minute, we're going to invite you to go and receive your communion. What are they representative? Well, the bread is representative of Jesus's body that was broken for you on the cross. The juice that you're going to dip the bread into, it is emblematic, a powerful picture of Christ's blood that was shed on the cross. Hebrews 7 says that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission, removal of sin. And as you dip it in there, it's a powerful reminder. I am forgiven. So Creekside has an open communion. You don't have to be a member of this church. Anybody can receive. But if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, all it is is just kind of a, kind of a religious thing to do, which has no, no efficacious power for you. But for those of us who love Jesus, I believe today when you receive 
and you dip, maybe there can be this powerful, renewed revelation of all that Jesus did for you, for me, for your family and friends out there that don't even know him yet. And while this is kind of heavy stuff that we went through today, it's important to never forget because ultimately this is what gives you joy for your life because you have a hope for now and into eternity. Amen? Amen. Would you stand with me? We're going to pray, and then I'm going to dismiss you. And for like, again, I think I said it earlier, but for those of you who are gluten-free, we have gluten uh, wafers that you can take and dip in as well. But would you just pray that Jesus help me to see you afresh today, to never forget what you've done for me. I don't want this to be heavy and macabre. I want it to be celebrative because that's what communion is about. It comes from the word Eucharist, to give thanks. I just want us to simply remember and give thanks to Jesus and for what he's done. Father, today we come. Thank you that the scripture says that you gave to us an indescribable gift, meaning your son. Jesus, thank you that you would come and give your life a ransom for us. When you could have saved yourself, you said, no, 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 no. This ain't about me. This is about humanity. And you died for us. May we never forget that. Thank you, Lord. And then thank you, Holy Spirit, that as we respond to the Son, you come and you indwell our lives and you empower us to live and to become more like Jesus every day in every way so that the people around us at work, in our family, in our neighborhoods, wherever we go, there is something of the life of God that's displayed. And Lord, it opens opportunities for us to share. So do a work in us today, Lord, as we receive our communion. We thank you, Lord, for what these represent in Jesus' name.